And now I'm speaking with Aidan Jonah, and he is the editor-in-chief of The Canada Files. Uh, you know, before we start on any of this, I got to ask you about The Canada Files, because I noticed it popping up on Facebook and some of the people we interview on this program, like Eve Engler and others, are appearing on the Canada Files. So it's, it's nice to have a, a website and a news source that brings out these columnists. So for our listeners who might not be familiar with it, because I think this is pretty new, what can you tell us about the Canada Files? So uh, the Canada Files is a platform for critical analysis of Canadian foreign policy and the military-industrial complex. We cover left-wing activism and key world issues that others will not as a socialist, anti-imperialist outlet. We mainly focus on covering Canada's foreign policy, important world issues, as well as news about Indigenous nations. Okay, so this uh, fills a much-needed gap. I like that it's becoming so easy now to get articles on these subjects. And uh, so I thank you for putting this together, making these authors available. But it's not just about all the authors that are at the Canada Files. It's about you as well, because we're talking about your article. Uh, I got it right here. It's called U.S.-backed Hong Kong political party Demosisto collapses as China takes firm steps to prevent second colonization. Uh, so this is about a myriad of events in Hong Kong and political action and the figure of Joshua Wong and all of the intrigue surrounding this. And um, you kind of have to give background on this. And I'm glad your article puts things into good perspective here, because if you start out right now, it looks like Joshua Wong's party is not doing too well at the moment. But as you pointed out, we need to reflect on what that party and what that movement is. It came out of this sort of umbrella movement that emerged around 2014. So this is something from the very beginning that seemed to have U.S. involvement, U.S. funding. So I'm wondering, like, what is this movement and who was funding it in terms of the, the organizations or the institutions? So in terms of main funding, a lot of that really came from a newspaper magnet, Jimmy Lai. He was the founder of a nativist news network, Next Digital, and its tremendously popular paper, Apple Daily. So now Jimmy Lai himself bankrolled those protests into the millions of dollars. He poured in more than 1.2 million to anti-China political parties, including 637,000 US dollars to the Democratic Party and 382,000 US dollars to the Civic Party. And he gave around 600,000 on the unofficial referendum and the Civic Education Foundation. So he's put in significant funding during that umbrella movement to essentially astroturf it. Right. So you've got this billionaire, Jimmy Lai, and, you know, these actions formed into this party, Demosistu. So how did actions in Hong Kong coalesce into this party? Like, what were their aims? What are these people trying to get that they had to create a party in order to achieve their aims? So the main thing, and when I was researching this, I really found that the party policy was extremely unclear. But the one thing that was clear, the party specifically promised to hold a referendum in 2026 on whether Hong Kong would separate from China. So basically that was the extent of the policy. And obviously this clashed very much with the terms of Hong Kong's 1997 handover from Britain to China. 
And so this is where the real conflict with the um, the government actually began. Okay, so, I mean, the problem with this is that Hong Kong was separated from China for a very long time. And as you point out in the article, this was done in the rudest possible manner. So, you know, you pointed out there's a need to briefly revisit the history of Hong Kong and its separation from China by the United Kingdom, by the British Empire. So, you know, when we talk about Hong Kong not being part of China, you know, what exactly happened there? How did it happen? What was the UK's policy towards China in the colonial period? Okay, so... Basically, the British declared a colonial war on China all the way back in 1839. And this really came down to their refusal to allow opium to be consumed for non-medical usage. So by 1842, uh, Britain had forcefully occupied Shanghai and China was forced to surrender. They were forced to sign the Treaty of Nanking, which ceded control of Hong Kong to China, to Britain. Uh, and so further conflicts in the region around opium continued for decades, in which the British further colonized areas of China, including part of the Kowloon Peninsula and Stonecutters Island. A lease deal was agreed upon in 1898, where control of the already colonized land of Hong Kong was officially given to the British for 99 years. Okay, so you move forward, you move ahead, of course, and... Hong Kong is to be reintegrated with China. Now, of course, for those just tuning in, I am speaking with Aidan Jonah, and he's with the Canada Files, and he's recently written an article on the changing fortunes of Joshua Wong's political party uh, in Hong Kong, caught up in this whole separatist imbroglio. So when we look at the current situation, Joshua Wong founded Demosisto, and you were trying to figure out what the politics of this organization were. And what I'm the sense I'm getting from you is that the, the most coherent policy of this organization was this, this separatism. So this is uh, problematic because, of course, you point out there is this reintegration agreement. So Hong Kong is to become completely reintegrated into China, although the United States has been very interested in imposing its own viewpoint, its own actions, its own activity on China. So if we look at Joshua Wong's bio and his politics, you bring up some examples. There's a nice photo of him meeting with the U.S. politician Marco Rubio to talk about this Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. And you can get a, a sense of what the politics involved here are. So the United States wants to have a say in Hong Kong's affairs and Hong Kong's relationship with China and what Hong Kong's domestic and foreign policies are. So if we look at um, this act that uh, Marco Rubio was talking about in meeting with Joshua Wong to discuss, what are the things that the U.S. is trying to achieve in its own act and in its relationship with Joshua Wong? So essentially in uh, Joshua Wong, um, they essentially have a figure who really became the main figure of the quote-unquote pro-democracy movement and really an icon in Hong Kong. And now he uh, and the party he founded with Demosisto uh, have significant connections to the NED, and so that's the National Endowment for Democracy, which Alan Weinstein, the former acting director, 
1991, effectively was set up to do the job of the CIA. So now, um, in terms of a little bit more of his background, so Wong used to be a student activist in uh, 2012, actually. He rallied around 100,000 people to protest Hong Kong's plans to uh, implement uh, a more Chinese-based education, which is obviously part of bringing bringing Hong Kong back into China. And... um, he fought against that, caught uh, really the eyes of the U.S., built the relationship into Demo Sisto, and then started to work with the U.S. government and their imperialist lackeys to really turn up the sanctions against Hong Kong and try to force it to, to be unable to reintegrate into China. Right. When you go over a little list in that article, it's quite interesting. They, they seem to really want to have a strong say in what Hong Kong is doing. They want to quote from your article, you say, the bill requires the U.S. government to closely scrutinize whether Hong Kong, quote, enforces sanctions imposed by the United States, end quote, against North Korea and Iran in particular, along with any other country that Washington deems presently a threat to the national security, foreign policy, or economy of the United States. And of course, it also aims to safeguard U.S. business interests from IP theft and scrutinize whether Hong Kong is enforcing U.S. export control laws and uh, provides legal justification for the U.S. to impose sanctions on China. So you said that this means if Hong Kong is not supporting U.S. foreign policy, uh, in terms of sanctions and all of that, then China is going to be sanctioned. So uh, this is uh, this is a very invasive act, and they're working directly with people. You pointed out in the article as well the significant funding that had come from these organizations. I find that interesting because uh, you mentioned some people in um, the Canada Files in, in other articles. You have some regular authors like Eve Engler. And he's someone who's talked about the National Endowment for Democracy as well. It's a familiar organization to people that talk about imperialism because of what they do in, you know, Venezuela and Haiti. It's it's a long-running subject. And they want Hong Kong to be another kind of dependency where they can enforce U.S. law and U.S. objectives. Uh, but, you know, the U.S. has its objectives. It has its policies and its goals. Not everyone agrees with the United States. And I think this is an important part of the article and a very important point you're making. So um, you mentioned the 44th session of the United Nations Human Rights Council, and it looks like Cuba was welcoming the adoption of a new security law in China. So what is this the security law that China is adopting now, and why is it getting support, or who is giving support at the United Nations? So essentially, one of the major major problems right now, and uh, they had made attempts to solve this earlier, is that national security cases, the Chinese government didn't legally have authority to deal with these cases in a proper manner. And essentially, because of the mass protests, which are really astroturfed by the NED and also other organizations, which um, really were tremendously violent. I mean... Basically, there was multiple cases of people being set on fire, basically people, journalists being attacked and kidnapped. And so it essentially defined um, four categories of offenses. So there's the act of secession, 
subversion, terrorist activities, and collusion with a foreign country or external elements to endanger national security. And so this placed uh, severe penalties on these. And uh, quite frankly, uh, it's kind of a move that was needed because with the NED and all these other organizations with U.S.-backed regime change groups, there was clear collusion and they were able to essentially do this in the open. And so these countries, mostly like socialist-leaning, left-leaning countries, they've had experience with U.S. imperialism constantly. So they understand the anti-colonial and anti-imperialist struggle very well, which leads them to support China's actions. Yeah, so there's a couple aspects to this. First is the decolonial aspect. So uh, China wants it to be the case that imperial powers no longer have the ability to intervene in domestic politics inside China, inside Hong Kong, um, and they're enacting legislation in that respect. So we see supporting them, like you said, a lot of global South countries, former colonies. Uh, you have a list here, just to name some of them, uh, Antigua and Barbuda, uh, Cuba, uh, Gambia, Sierra Leone, <laughs> uh, Venezuela, Yemen, uh, and so forth, um, quite a number of countries in support and opposing China's legislation. You can guess who that's going to be. It's Australia, uh, Belgium, Canada, France, Iceland, Netherlands, New Zealand, Switzerland, and of course the UK. So it's clear what the dividing lines are on that particular response to the Chinese legislation, which by the way, when the Chinese are implementing these laws that say a foreign country cannot come in and fund politics in Hong Kong. A foreign country cannot come in and meet with rioters who are burning things and committing acts of violence. It cannot go and encourage them. You cannot be in a political party that is taking money from the United States or the UK or some other foreign power. They are implementing aspects of the Constitution or the legal frameworks in Hong Kong that already existed uh, since unification. Uh, so they're simply asserting the laws that are supposed to exist with reference to political parties being independent of foreign funding and foreign dominance. There's an interesting quote from the Chow Collective that you include in the article, and it says, the fact that China passing a simple law that bans the U.S. from funding groups in Hong Kong with the goal of overthrowing the Communist Party of China has caused every democracy group in Hong Kong to shut down, tells you everything that you need to know about the actual driving forces behind this movement. So correct me if I'm wrong, but when Joshua Wong found that this organization, Demosisto, was in contravention of the Don't Take Foreign Money Act, that seemed to be a primary driver of, of shutting this down. Yeah, and I mean, it wasn't like he had, um, it wasn't like he didn't have any uh, neocon options to help overthrow the government from afar because he had actually joined the quote-unquote Hong Kong Democracy Council, which guess who's funding it? The National Endowment for Democracy. Now, this was in September 2019. So he essentially already had a get out of jail and try to throw overthrow China option. And so, quite frankly, it's quite unsurprising that that group collapsed like a house of cards the second there's consequences for foreign governments, for colluding with foreign governments to try to interfere with the country's affairs. Right. So basically, China is saying 
if you are in a political party and you're taking money and direction from another country, um, that is no longer allowed and that will be a, a criminal act. So they had to sort of pack it up for now. So they're basically saying, yeah, we're, we take money and direction from foreign governments so we can no longer operate legally in Hong Kong. It's very interesting. And it, again, it, it reinforces the whole colonial aspect of this process where the actors that are engaged in violent rioting, including setting people on fire, as you mentioned, something I unfortunately saw videos of one of these so-called protesters doing, um, those acts and the collusion with foreign bodies are no longer legal. And they're clearly representative of the fact that the foreign powers like the US, UK, and so on, are not really concerned about who gets hurt in Hong Kong, as long as they can sort of try to drive a wedge between Hong Kong and China, or use it to put pressure on China so that they can criticize it for various reasons. So it looks like China's finally taking some steps to make that kind of activity illegal. And in that respect, it really is more than decolonization. It's like what you say in the heading, China is taking steps to prevent a second colonization. So maybe you can elaborate on that, but it seems that they do not want Hong Kong to be used as a springboard for further instability and loss of sovereignty in China. Yes, that's uh, that really is uh, correct. And so obviously, as I mentioned before, there's extremely strong sentiments to reintegrate Hong Kong into mainland China, because quite frankly, it is a part of China. And so many uh, even activists and government officials basically view the U.S.-backed NGOs providing financial support as the plan to re-annex Hong Kong. They view it as the modern-day equivalent of colonization, more of a neo-colonial method of financial domination, to reassert, which is used to reassert control of newly independent African states. Right. Okay. So, the, yeah, there is a long-term established post-war pattern here where countries, the dominant Western countries, are able to use those kind of mechanisms to keep other countries in thrall. And certainly some of the actions in Hong Kong have been consistent with patterns seen in Latin America and Africa with regard to how the U.S. uses its soft power institutions. So I'm really glad you highlighted all that. And I, I guess you close out the article uh, looking at how this security law works. And you are looking at a report from The Nation in Pakistan. Uh, so what's what's going to be happening, I guess, going forward? What is this law going to do? What are the requirements? I guess, how are people supposed to operate under uh, this, uh, this new law that's coming up? Well, in a simplistic view, it's really don't collude with foreign governments uh, to try to overthrow a country and don't push separatist politics that are against the very core of a country's constitution. This is a very much that quote-unquote pro-democracy movement is very much a neo-colonial movement, and they are really the lackeys for the United States. So it's respect the constitution of the country and respect uh, China's sovereignty at its very core. Yeah, a lot of those, those protesters and rioters that provide videos and photos of themselves seem to really, really heavily identify with the former colonial power, uh, the United Kingdom, and the current imperial power, the United States. If you look, they're always holding a British flag and an American flag at the same time, making their signs in English and calling on President Trump to liberate them and <laughs> all yep. sorts. Yeah, so um, 
it's kind of a it's a sad affair, but it looks like uh, China is saying that a neo-colonial form of politics in Hong Kong is not going to be acceptable going forward. So it seems to be an important step for China, and it's being recognized as such in the United Nations by all these other countries who have had problems with U.S.-backed movements and, and separatism and so on. So I'm glad you made that all available to us. I guess this is not the only article about Hong Kong and China on the Canada Files, and I'm sure it's not going to be, right? So there's going to be more articles about Hong Kong. What are the other things people can find on the website? Because I saw, again, as I mentioned, you have Eve Angler and others, so you must be covering international affairs. So what else are people are going to find on the Canada Files? So obviously we keep a very close eye on uh, the Israeli occupation of uh, Palestine uh, and many other countries were had some coverage and actually been fortunate enough to have a writer who's in Kashmir. So he's written a few articles and you can check them out uh, in the Asia section of our foreign policy part. Um, and so we've been fortunate enough also to have a writer such as Arnold August uh, as well on. And that was uh, really a major uh, success per se to actually have someone of his quality come on and write for the Canafals. Uh, and so there is, quite frankly, a great variety. We're keeping a very close eye on action in the world. We've uh, been covering recently, and your viewers can um, go and check this, basically how uh, food vendors has been viciously targeted in Toronto simply for showing solidarity with Palestine. They've basically, these pro-Israel lobby organizations have basically attempted to viciously bankrupt this company. Uh, and... This is the kind of coverage you can expect from the Canafiles, really. Uh, critical analysis, keeping a very close eye on the important issues. And I think the most important part is the identity. We're clear that we're socialist. We're clear that we're anti-imperialist. And there's no apologies about that. Well, I think we're going to see more of that kind of thing, not just at the Canada Files, but elsewhere in the future. So uh, you're riding a bit of a wave there. And it seems that the issues you're talking about are highly relevant and in today's news. So uh, good job there. So look forward to seeing more about Hong Kong and all these other issues on the Canada Files. And, uh, and thanks for taking your time today to be with us here on the program. Yeah, thanks so much. This was uh, great to appear on your show.